Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, which I believe is on page 917 if you're using the Pew Bible. I think that we've all witnessed this scene before. Imagine a small child standing on the edge of a swimming pool. Dad is in the pool, arms out wide, beckoning, jump, I'll catch you. But the child's scared, no reason to be scared, right? But still, she steps up to the edge and considers it for a bit, then backs away, unable to make the leap. A bit more goading, maybe watching some other kids do, do it, and then she steps up again, trembling, and makes the leap. And she hits the water, and what do you know? Dad's arms sweep her up and hold her tight. Realizing that was actually quite fun, she circles back to the edge again, a bit more confident this time, jumps again, and Dad's there again. And then we all know what happens next. She wants to do the same thing 938 more times. When she started, she wasn't sure, but by the end, she knows he will catch her. But she doesn't just know it like someone knows math or state capitals or theological words. She knows it like someone who's hit the water and then felt her father's hands hoist her up over and over again. That's the kind of real knowledge our text calls us to today. As we carry on, still in the introductory portion of Paul's letter, Paul has just finished his jam-packed doxology, laying out the glories of the gospel in verse 3 through 14. Now he turns in, in this prayer of thanksgiving and intercession, asking that God would grant them to know, like really know, the hope, the riches, and the power of the Father who raised up Christ from the dead, exalted him above everything, and sat him on the throne where he's presently reigning and is presently head over his body, the church. Let's read Ephesians chapter 1, 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and all. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word as a precious gift to us. Help us now to submit under your word. Help us to be those of us that need to be encouraged, 
Help us to listen attentively and be encouraged by your word. God, those that need to be comforted, help us to be comforted. Father, convict us that need to be convicted. Father, if your word is what it claims to be, and we confess that it is, then you can change us right now. And if your spirit is active among us here, we confess that he is, then you can change us right now. So, Father, I pray that you would do that work in us individually and in us as a people. Lord, that you would do that work in us for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Paul begins with a call back to verse 3 through 14. For this reason, he then elaborates on that, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. So he is writing to Christians. This is why he's thankful. He's thankful that they have faith in Christ that they possess all the blessings of the Spirit that he's just laid out in the letter so far. And he's thankful for the way their faith in the gospel shows itself in love for the saints. Loving Jesus results in loving God's people always. There's no way around that, 1 John 2. But because of this, Paul says, I haven't stopped thanking God for you. But his thanksgiving is brief and quickly gives way to petitioning God for the ongoing growth in their lives. And starting in verse 17, we begin to see what he prays for them. He prays, Father, by the Holy Spirit, give them wisdom and revelation to really know you. By the Holy Spirit, give light to the eyes of their heart. This is how we grow church, through the Spirit continuing to do his work, through the wisdom of God, through God revealing himself to us more and more so that we may know God and really know him. But as alluded to earlier, this knowledge in verse 17 is not the head knowledge of facts. It's the relational, experiential knowledge of truly knowing God more and more. That said, I think it's worth noting that growth in the Christian life most often is learning before experiencing or learning before loving. There are surely times when we experience first and then learn, like experiencing the joy of Christian community and then reading what the Bible has to say about it. But most often we learn first through study and then we're able to love and experience the knowledge of God, because his word is the means of grace that he's chosen to reveal himself to us through. As I emphasize that the knowledge of God here in view is something more than head knowledge, don't hear me saying that study, learning, doctrine, all of that is unimportant. Romans tells us we're transformed by the renewing of our mind, and sound doctrine and study in his word is indeed very important. No doubt some of us need to do more of that. Rather, my point is that the kind of knowing that Paul is praying for is still yet on the other side of head knowledge. It's the kind of knowledge that clings to the promises, 
that trusts in them, rests in them, appropriates them in life, and is encouraged by them. It goes on, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. I don't know much about biology. I don't know much about a science book. Um, but I do know this, that the heart doesn't have eyes. Paul uses a wonderful word picture here that I think is worth dwelling on for a moment. He closely equates receiving the wisdom and revelation from the Holy Spirit with having the eyes of your heart enlightened. Heart here in its biblical use is not how we use the word today. right? If uh, someone were to say, she broke my heart, you would understand them to mean that they're emotionally devastated. If someone were to say, follow your heart, first of all, that's bad advice, but uh, don't listen to it. But second, we'd understand them to to mean something like, follow your instinct. And if you said, I just don't think I have the heart to do it, then you would understand me to be saying, I don't have the willpower for it. But in biblical use, the heart is not simply the emotions or the instinct or the will. Rather, it refers to all of a person. The source of your life, your thoughts, your emotions, all of you. And eyes, of course, are how we perceive things. Close your eyes and it's all dark. Open them and you can see. Paul's prayer then is that all of who we are would be illuminated by the light of the gospel. Picture then your mind being flooded with the light of Jesus. Your affections being flooded with the light of Jesus. And your will being lit up with the light of Jesus. He wants us to be affected by Jesus in every part of us. He states it the opposite way in chapter 4, verse 18. Talking of the unbeliever, he says they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. So his prayer for the Christians is, God, fill them with your Holy Spirit to help them know, really know, in their thinking, in their affections, in their will, illuminate all that they are. As he states in a similar passage in 2 Corinthians, for God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. So what is it that he wants us to know? Grammatically, Paul prays that the Christian would know three things. What is the hope? What are the riches? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power? And then he gets so amped in illustrating the third thing that he just goes off. So from there, I have a fourth point for you this morning. But in short form, Paul's prayer is that we would know, really know, the power of the gospel. And I find it striking that as Paul comes out of all of 3 through 14, where he's just laid out the gospel for them in all its glory, and then he turns, he turns, and he wants to pray 
for their ongoing growth in the gospel. And what does he pray for? What does he want? He turns right back to the gospel, wanting us to know it more intimately. Church, this is what we mean when we say we describe ourselves as gospel-centered. Okay, gospel-centered was a hot buzzword for a while, and it got to the point where it was fuzzy and like no one even knew what it meant. But we don't merely mean that we're going to fervently hold out the gospel to non-believers. That's true, but that's not what we mean by saying we're gospel-centered. We mean that the good news of Jesus Christ crucified on a cross for our sin is what we're banking our entire lives on. We mean that we come to Christ by the grace of God, that we grow in Christ by the grace of God, and we look forward to our glorification, all of it, by the grace of God. So, for example, we don't come to Christ by grace and then progress in the Christian life by earning. There's effort, yes, but it's never earning because Christ has already earned it all for us. Rather, we understand the imperatives of the Bible, the commands of the Bible to be rooted in the indicatives, the things that are already true about us because of the gospel. As we get to the points today, you'll note that there's a good bit of overlap between them. They're all rooted in the gospel, in God's saving work, but there's also a little bit different inflection in each one. And... As I keep promising to get to the points, if I can make one further remark about who we are as a church. One of the things you hear around here is that we want to be growing and helping others grow. Wherever you are in your Christian maturity, if the Lord hasn't taken you home yet, then there's room for ongoing growth. Let this text before us inform us about where we should seek to grow. Listen with an ear for specific ways you yourself can make progress in Christ-likeness. But also, we want to be a community that is helping each other grow. And that's from the new believer all the way up to the seasoned saint. If you're in Christ, then there's work for you to do helping your fellow brothers and sisters grow in grace. So listen also with an ear for how you might help another brother or sister grow in grace. If God brings some tangible way of doing that to mind, then take that as your notes as you listen. Seek to put that into action this week. How can you help others grow in these things? First, know the hope of your calling. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. I uh, can't come to this topic of hope without pointing this out. If for no other reason than this little soapbox encourages my own soul every time. Biblical hope is not the same as the way we most often use the word hope. When we say hope, we mean I wish it were true. This is the desired outcome I'm hoping for. Like I hope that the fall weather is here to actually stay. I hope that traffic is not bad today. Let's hope this test comes back negative. 
but it's a wish, it's a desire, and it has no basis in any kind of promise. Biblical hope, though, is a sure bet. First Peter says we're born again to a living hope. That is, it's not a dead hope. Biblical hope is the sure light at the end of the tunnel. It is coming. It will happen. You can stake your life on it because its basis is in the faithfulness of God and in his revelation to us. Our hope remains unseen, but it's surely there. Paul says the hope to which he has called you. Calling is short form for all that he's done in your life through the gospel. Paul and the other New Testament writers use it over and over as he does even in chapter 4 of the book of Ephesians. He says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Once you were in darkness, but God called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. As shorthand for all the benefits of the gospel, calling refers to all of it. Those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. That's your calling. But note this about Paul's prayer. He doesn't pray, help them to get hope from the gospel. As if that's just like one thing that might speculatively arise from the gospel. His prayer is that the Christian would know the hope that is inherent, inherently bound up with the calling. The hope's there. His prayer is that you would see it. Paul's prayer is that we would know it, cling to it, rest in it. Church, are you a hopeful person? Is your life marked by a Christ-centered optimism? Let me be clear, I'm not talking about your personality. Be reserved, be introverted, be less excitable, whatever. That's not what I'm talking about. You can be a hopeful person and be introverted, just like you can be an extrovert and be cynical or gloomy. So personality aside, Christian, are you hopeful? You should be. Faith, hope, and love, that's the great triad of Christian character. Can we just agree that looking into the good news of the gospel ought to make you a hopeful person? Like the Christian shouldn't be Eeyore? He shouldn't be like Charlie Brown with the rain cloud coming? I say this as a recovering cynic. The Lord had to deal with me on this, but there's something really incongruent about being the recipient of this marvelous gospel and then always being the negativity that walks into the room. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, assumes that Christians saved by grace with the Holy Spirit dwelling in them would be a people of obvious hope. So much so that their hope would be evident to those around them and spark gospel conversations. 
He says, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Church, I'm not talking about faking it. I'm not talking about plastic happiness. The church needs less of that, not more of that. I'm talking about a real, authentic hope that wells up from a real, lavish gospel. And let me be clear, I'm also not talking about trying to pretend that pain isn't painful, but I'm talking about always, even in the midst of life's storms, having a bedrock conviction rooted in God's goodness to us. If you've started to lose hope because you're in the suffering, then share that with someone. Because as your church family, we want to be there for you so that when you start to lose hope, you can borrow some of ours. The Christian should be a hopeful person, but going further, Christian, is your hope in the gospel? Maybe you're not Eeyore, but is your optimism welling up? Is it coming from the gospel? Or is it just welling up from some kind of positive circumstances? We all know those are fleeting. Those won't carry us through. When suffering does strike, are you trusting in the living water Jesus offers? Or are you trusting in broken cisterns, wells that will run dry? I love what C.S. Lewis says about how God uses suffering to show us where our faith really lies. He says, God has not been trying an experiment on my faith or love in order to find out their quality. He knew it already. It was I who didn't. He always knew that my temple was a house of cards. His only way of making me realize that fact was to knock it down. Last, what are you doing to grow in the hope of the gospel? What are the disciplines the rhythms, both personal and in community, whereby you grow in more hope. Reading the scriptures, prayer, spending time in private worship, reading good books. For me, the Puritans are just gold for my soul. Okay, rushing out the door back in the spring to the hospital when Wyatt was there. I grabbed my Bible and I grabbed Thomas Watson's All Things for Good. I just knew that that would be a balm for my soul during that tough time. Listening to certain music wells up my hope, but also corporate rhythms. Church, take time to know others and be known by them. Invest, invest relationally in a crew of other people who can encourage you. Read the Bible with them. And shameless plug, I'm not ashamed, but come to the monthly prayer meeting. It may be my favorite thing that we do. I was talking to Matt this past week afterward as we walked to our cars, and I said, it's just such a sweet time. He said, I agree. I want to love Jesus more after that. That's not a guilt trip. That's just my own five-star Yelp review, okay? No the hope of your calling. Second, know the riches of his inheritance. He goes on, what are the 
riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. Uh, Commentators are split on what is in view here. However, good news, they're split on two truths which we can which can both be corroborated from other passages, uh, which helps to just lower the stakes a little bit. So uh, if nothing else, you can take the next minute to think about Bible study method. In one view, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints refers to the inheritance that God is to receive as his portion. And then in that view, that would be the high value that God puts on his people as his prized possession. And this kind of language of his people as his inheritance fits with how Israel is repeatedly called God's inheritance in the Old Testament, such as Deuteronomy chapter 9, 29 Quoting from the NASB here, Yet they are your people, even your inheritance, whom you have brought out by your great power and your outstretched arm. So on that reading, you as the believer should be encouraged because of how much God prizes his people. And like I said, that's true. This can be seen from other texts, so you can cling to that as true regardless. However, I'm a bit persuaded, a bit more persuaded of the other view, that what is in view here is the inheritance that believers receive from God the Father as adopted full heirs. I can give you four quick reasons I would interpret it that way. One, because of verse five, as I just alluded to, that we've been adopted as sons of God, as full heirs. Verse 11 and 14 also reference the inheritance, but the same debate is really going on there. Second, the inheritance is described as glorious, and that's language that's usually used of God, not of the saints. Third, the other things in this three-part list are things that God, are blessings that God bestows on believers, so it's a little bit odd for the second to be something God receives, but Granted, Paul can sometimes just be a little bit odd. Fourth, and probably the biggest one that sways me, is that Ephesians and Colossians, they're so close together, they share many of the similar themes, and at a few points, they share very similar language. In the Thanksgiving intro in Colossians, Paul writes in Colossians 1.12, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. And so in Colossians, he's clearly talking about the inheritance that we receive. So there you go. That's why I may have turned down a different interpretive road than your study Bible that you're looking at right now. Um, Christian, know the riches of his inheritance. I won't spend a ton of time here because we've hit this over and over in the first few weeks. But just take a moment with me to savor the language that's used of our inheritance in Christ. If you take up the challenge that I've thrown out there a few times to read through the book of Ephesians once per week as we go through this series, then one of the themes that you would see in the first half is riches. It comes back over and over. Starting in verse 7, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us. 
here the riches of his glorious inheritance. Next week, God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. 2.7, we see the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. 3.8, we see the unsearchable riches of Christ. 3.16, it's according to the riches of his glory. So church, know it more. Grasp hold of it. God has not been stingy with his grace. And he's not limited with his resources. Rather, he's poured it out lavishly because of his immeasurable riches. Church, do you receive that as a blessing? Or is every blessing of the Spirit, his lavish grace, his immeasurable riches, is that dealing in a currency that you don't have an appetite for? Tune your heart to him so that you can receive his lavish grace. Third, know the greatness of his power. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. The third thing Paul wants us to know is the greatness of his power. And he really wants us to know this. Note the repetition of power words. Immeasurable greatness of his power. That's already a pretty loaded phrase. However, Paul's not done there. As one commentator notes, as if that were not enough, he piles up three synonyms for power in an elaborate description of the display of omnipotence by the Lord of hosts and Christ. He further notes that there are five or six other places in the New Testament where the author might double up on power words, but there's nowhere else that the author triples up or as here quadruples up on words that are synonyms of power. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Bottom line, Paul is extravagant, pulling out every word he can in order to draw attention to just how powerful God is. Second note, this wonderful little phrase about the direction of God's power toward us who believe. That's an amazing mercy of God right there. On our own, we deserve to have his power directed toward us, but not for our good. On our own, we deserve the wrath of chapter 2, verse 3, but by his ridiculous grace in Christ in Christ, God's power toward us who believe is for our good. If you're here today and you haven't trusted in Christ, hear me. You may think you're too far gone. You may think you're too callous to come alive. You may think you're too complacent. You may think you've heard the message too many times to believe it now, that you're too apathetic, but God's power can work in you. 
You may think it sounds too good to be true. Can I tell you something? Many of us felt the same. Indeed, many of us still struggle with some of those same doubts here and there, but God's power can work in you too. Jesus died the death that you deserve. If you would surrender to him by faith, you can receive the life that he earned. Though you be spiritually numb right now, God can raise you up by his power. And if that's you, and you'd like to hear more, all you need to do is turn to the person that brought you, turn to someone sitting next to you, turn to any of us being that's been, that's been up front this morning, and you can just say, can you tell me more about trusting in Jesus? If that conversation is too much, then you can just pull out the connect card sitting on the seat back in front of you, check the box, and we'd love to have someone reach out to you privately this week. But hear me, you don't have to stay dead in your sin. God has provided a way toward life in Christ. Church, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. He wants you to know it, to rest in it, to have confidence in it like the child jumping into the arms of your father. Maybe you missed a few times of personal worship this week. Maybe you didn't have any at all. He's still at work in you. Lean into it. Even when you're in the ho-hum, ordinary faithfulness of the week-to-week of the Christian life, when there's no fireworks and there's no mountaintops, his power is still at work in you. We feel it, don't we, during those special times of great closeness with the Father, those times where it seems we could just go on praying for hours or just go reading the Word, soaking up every morsel. Praise God for those times. But it's still working in you when you're holding life together with duct tape and zip ties. When he seems hidden, he's still not far away. He's working even then to bring you from one degree of glory to another, working for your good and for his glory. Christian, do you feel, do you feel resigned to live with some besetting sin? Like it's been with you for so long, you just think, I'll never change. I'll always be this way. Don't give in. Preach truth, believe your Bible. You can grow past that because the same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in you. Know him and the power of his resurrection. You can grow past that sin. He can do it in a moment or he may do it through much striving, pain, and toil, but he can change you. He can sanctify that part of you. It's going to quote here from John Newton. I asked the Lord that I might grow. Or William Cooper, God moves in a mysterious way. But as I start looking at those great hymns, I'm like, I don't know what to quote. I want to quote it all. Take, take time to, to go read those. And Christian, take 
heart that he's working in power even when you don't see it. Here's one way you can know this. If you've walked with the Lord for any time at all, no doubt you've been in the valley before. You're still here. By God's grace, you made it through. If you've walked with the Lord for any time at all, you've seen him affect a victory over sin that you didn't think you'd be able to get through. And he's still faithful and he's still at work in you for the next battle that comes. Christian, know the greatness of his power at work in you. And last, know that Christ is reigning. I wish, I wish I could unpack all that is going on here in this text. These three verses that are just jam-packed and loaded Speaking of the power that God works in believers, Paul just goes off. He gets carried away elaborating on this to the point that some have speculated this might be like an early church hymn or it might be an early confession that he's referencing here, but he goes off trying to illustrate this point. According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. There's... So much wonderful Christology here. So much wonderful things we can learn about Jesus. Jesus humbled himself in the incarnation. He walked the earth as the suffering servant. But having gone to the cross and accomplished his mission, he rose victorious and he's the suffering servant no longer. Today, now, He sits at God's right hand, reigning now over all powers now and forevermore. All rivals are a footstool to his feet as he's king over the whole world and head over his body, the church. Paul says, I'll tell you about God's power at work in you. It's the power of resurrection and exaltation It's the power that conquered death and resurrected Christ. It raised him up and seated him at God's right hand. And because we're united to Christ, look down to chapter two, verse six. Same language, we too are raised with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. Raised him and seated, raised him with him and seated. His exaltation means he's reigning over the world right now. In his ascension to sit at God's right hand, Jesus reigns even now. Do you get it? No. Look around the world. You don't see everything in subjection to him yet, but make no mistake. King Jesus is on the throne. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 8 and 9 Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. 
At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. From his throne, Jesus is above every name, authority, rival, supposed deity. He's above every ideology, every power, every scheme. He's above every false religion and godless agenda. He's over and above every plot of Satan, every demonic attack, every disaster. Jesus is above every head of state, every industry titan, every academic elite, all of that Jesus reigns over. Metro Ephesus was an area steeped in cult worship. Read it in Acts chapter 9. Dark magic, home to the temple of Artemis. Paul repeatedly throughout this letter is going to seek to tell the Ephesians that Jesus' power is far and above greater than any demonic power that they face. And if he's greater than the demonic powers of Ephesus, he's greater than whatever powers are at work in Hushton, Brazelton, Jefferson, Winder. He's greater than an, a seemingly increasing secularism. Jesus is over that. He's greater than that certain like southern vein that just seems inoculated to the gospel. Jesus reigns over that. Paul here alludes to Psalm 110 that we opened the service with. He quotes from Psalm 8.6. This is Psalm 8.6. It says, You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Church, there's so much more that I could go in here, go into here that I can't fully go into today, but I think it would reward your study to see the connections with Psalm 110, Psalm 8. All the way back to Genesis 1. Jesus is reigning over the earth. He, and he's the head of his body, the church. In politics, people feel like some kind of confidence, right? When their man or their woman is in power. My party's in the governor's mansion. Yay. My party's occupying the White House. Whatever. As the church... Our head, King Jesus, is in power. He's sitting on the throne of the whole world. His reign now has begun, but one day he will reign in full. Church, cling to that. Know the hope of your calling. Know it. Know the riches, the riches of your inheritance, know the greatness of his power, and know that Christ is reigning. And don't just know them in an abstract, propositional way. Know these things closely, intimately, experientially. Stare at the truth long and hard. Work them over, pray through them, 
live in light of them, and just know them to the point that we no longer tremble and shake, wondering if our Father will catch us. Let's pray. Father, I just pray with Paul that you would stir us up to know the hope of our calling. God, I pray that you would stir up in us to know the riches of our inheritance. Lord, that we would know your power and take confidence from that. And Lord, that we would know that Jesus reigns even now. Lord, help us all to live in light of these truths. Help us not to become routine, boring. But Father, help us to cling to this as our very life. Father, as we go out from here, Lord, I pray that you would do a work in us to help us help others grow that you would build in us a desire, a love for one another that seeks to help them grow in grace as well. And Father, use your word to do whatever work you have to do in us as a church body. pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.